So today, uh, for our sermon, today we are going to be talking about um, peacemaking. You'll notice that we don't have a, uh, a stained glass window drawn by me this week. That's because it's been cut up into puzzle pieces, which I'll tell you why here in a few minutes. But uh, we are going to read this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. And uh, <clears throat> this is just kind of our jumping off point for talking about peacemaking. Okay, So starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. So Paul has written this letter to the people in Corinth, and he's, he's trying to make a number of different arguments uh, with them and trying to convince them of several things, and this is one of the things he's trying to convince them of. He says, we are not committing ourselves to you, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Apparently, Paul has some reason to think that the Corinthians think he's out of his mind. Having read all of Paul's letters, I think there might be some evidence of that sometimes, but um, <laughs> no. So if, if we are out of our mind, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So in other words, Paul and the people in Corinth and anybody who's believed in Christ is supposed, they're supposed to have experienced this transformation where they can no longer see Jesus in a human way. And they can also no longer see any human being in a human way. That what has happened in their experience with Christ Jesus has made them so thoroughly new that they can no longer look at God the same way. They can no longer look at their neighbor or their stranger or an enemy or any human being in the same way. Their entire viewpoint of life has transformed. And they have been given a ministry to continue and to move that transformation along so that other people will experience this transformation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, and at an acceptable time, I have listened to you. And on a day of salvation, I have helped you. 
See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of, of God, sorry, but as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors, yet are true as unknown, and yet are well known as dying, and we see we and see we are alive as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. It's easy to take that and think uh, that there's only one thing going on. And that the one thing is that Paul is trying to reconcile people to God. He's absolutely doing that. It's front and center, right? We, we are supposed to have this ministry of reconciliation. Well, word that we use for it is evangelism, right? We, in, we need to go out into the world, and there are people who do not know their creator. There are people who do not know the one who died for them. There are people who do not know the one who can transform them, and that is part of our ministry. But the other thing that is maybe perhaps lost is that Paul, in the midst of making this argument, is actually doing a second thing, a second ministry of reconciliation. And that is that the people in Corinth had sort of rejected Paul's ministry. They had doubts about Paul's ministry. There was a rift in Paul's relationship with the people in Corinth. And so the ministry of reconciliation is partially to get them to reconcile to God, be reconciled to God. But the second part of it, and I think equally important, is to reconcile the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. Right? Because Jesus says... That all the law summed up, everything, the great commandment is these two things, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And so when we talk about this peacemaking, when we talk about reconciliation, there are two kinds of reconciliation at work. There's a reconciliation that provides the capacity for us to love God. And there is the reconciliation that provides the capacity for us to reconcile with our neighbor. That being transformed and being in Christ renews our relationship with God and has the capacity to renew our relationship with other human beings. The, uh, <clears throat> we've been going through church history and, uh, and kind of going through these different heroes from church history. And today, last week, I took you to the year 1401. Today, I'm going to take you to the year 1516. Okay, in the year 1516, not a whole lot had changed since the year 1401, but there were, a there were a decent number of things. The church was still riddled with corruption. There were many, many bishops in the, the Catholic Church, which was really the only church in the uh, western side of Europe. There were many priests, many bishops who were getting very, very wealthy off of being priests and off of being bishops. And they were selling things called indulgences that were basically a script that you could get for to purchase a, a type of forgiveness. 
There were uh, people who purchased their office in the church. They actually would buy their place as bishop. So it wasn't like we gather around and we ask who's called to be bishop. It wasn't like we gather around and we ask who is it that really God is pushing forward to be the leader of this church. It was somebody could actually put a price tag on being bishop and people could purchase that. That was called simony and it was widespread. And perhaps the worst thing about the year 1516 was this guy named Leo who was the pope. And Pope Leo was one of the most corrupt popes of all time. And his basic goal in life was uh, to be as wealthy as he could be and to build a massive church called St. Peter's Basilica. And the way that he decided to sell St. Peter or to, to build St. Peter's Basilica because he was in massive amounts of debt was uh, to sell indulgences to common and poor people throughout Europe. And he went around Europe. He had this guy named Johann uh, Tetzel, who was like the greatest used car salesman before there were used cars. And he would go out and he would say that the bones of Peter, okay, because everybody in that day in, a, in that day believed that Peter had been buried in Rome and that they actually had his bones, which is not very true, but um, it's possible, I guess, probably unlikely. But anyway, he would actually go and he would say that the bones of St. Peter, that Rome lay in ruins and the bones of St. Peter were out and exposed to the elements and just laying there unprotected. And everybody, because they deeply cared about God and they deeply cared about their faith and they deeply cared about Jesus, felt terrible that the man who Jesus had said, this is the rock upon which I will build my church, Right? They felt terrible that his bones were just out there. That just seems like a travesty. And so poor people would go and they would buy these indulgences with the very last of their money, with every ounce of their money. 1516 was a dark time. They were especially within the church. Now along comes this guy named Martin Luther in the year 1517. And he, uh, in the year 1517, he challenges the idea of indulgences. So 1517, if you do the math, that's 500 years. October 31st, actually, 1517. So 500 years on Tuesday. He, uh, he publishes this thing called his 95 Theses, and uh, in there he challenges the idea of indulgences. And he sets a spark that we call the Protestant Reformation. That changes everything after that. And not just the church. I mean, it changes civilization. It changes everything about the trajectory of history. And he's kind of, he gets all the bill. Uh, when, when people talk about the Reformation, they, they talk about Martin Luther. When they write uh, articles in the really big newspapers, because there are several right now. Uh, I saw one in like the Washington Post and the New York Times and New York Post. And it's all, the, all the really big publications have something that they're running this week about the Reformation, and it's all about Martin Luther. But there was another guy that I want to tell to you about today. His name was Erasmus. Erasmus has been a longtime hero of mine. Because Erasmus, uh, well, for one thing that he did that uh, is interesting and is not as, this is just my nerd moment, okay? You can sort of check out and then check back in if you need to. Um, but uh, he, he was what was called a Christian humanist. Which uh, humanism in today's culture means somebody who like, doesn't believe in God and thinks that humans are kind of the, uh, the end to themselves. Uh, but that's not what this meant in the Renaissance period. A, a Christian humanist was someone who believed that God had created our capacity for learning and therefore we should learn. 
that actually learning was a good thing and that if we would apply ourselves to our capacity of learning, we could accomplish great things, that that was actually part of the will of God. And you may sound like, well, duh, not back then, <laughs> right? There, there, there were lots of people who were denied the access to kinds of uh, education. But Erasmus was very dedicated to that idea, and he published and worked really hard to make resources for learning available to common people, to everyday people. But here's the other thing that he did. So now check back in if you didn't want to listen to that. Uh, here's the other thing that he did is that he asked, he knew that the church was in dire straits. He knew that the church was breaking apart. He knew that something was about to happen. It was like uh, a barn full of very, very dry hay. And all it needed was one spark and it was going to burn down. And he knew that it was coming. But Erasmus cared deeply for the church. Erasmus cared deeply for the bonds between believers. He cared deeply about people sticking together. And so he came up with this idea. He called it the philosophy of Christ. And that idea was if people will study Jesus together, if people will focus on Jesus and his path and his way and his teachings, if people will just zero in on Jesus, then Jesus will fix this divide between us. Then Jesus will hold us together because that is what the New Testament teaches is that it is our bond, not within one another. It's not our bond in wanting to wear sweaters to church. It's not our bond in uh, wanting to have this carpet with stains in it. Uh, it's not our bond in wanting to have certain types of stained glass windows. It's not our bond to want hymns or choruses. It's not our bond to want a pastor who wears flannel shirts and has dark rim glasses. We all know that's out there. Um, anyway, I, uh, yeah. It's our bond in Christ that holds us together. And so Erasmus thought, if I can just get the church to, to turn its gaze on to Jesus, if I can get the church to toss off all those other things that are entangling us, that are holding us back, if I can just get people to think about Jesus, then I can get the church to reform and change and transform and better yet, stay together. Unfortunately, as beautiful and as wonderful as that was, it didn't work. Martin Luther uh, was uh, a different kind of guy than Erasmus. Martin Luther was fiery. Uh, there was this guy named Ulrich Zwingli, okay, who was uh, the leader of the Reformation in Switzerland. Okay, he had reached very similar conclusions about faith and about salvation to to Luther. Uh, right around the same time, but in Switzerland. And so he had broken away from the Catholic Church right around the same time as Luther. And they disagreed, okay? They disagreed on whether or not Jesus was particularly present in communion this way or that way, okay? That's it. That's what they disagreed. There were a couple other little tiny things. But that was the biggest thing that they disagreed on. Ulrich Zwingli died in like 1540. And Martin Luther said this, after when he was told that Zwingli died. Again, remember, the only difference between them really is about communion. And, Martin, and when he died, Zv uh, Luther said, Hell hath gained a noble soul. <laughs> okay? Only thing is communion. Hell hath gained. That's Martin Luther, okay? In a sentence. That's Martin Luther. Fiery, kind of divisive, doesn't, didn't really, he, he had never intended to split the church. That's true. But once this church was split, he was, man, it was, he, he was great with that. And so within very, very quickly after the year 1517, 
uh, the church begins to break apart, and it begins to break apart quickly. And different traditions, uh, different denominations begin, uh, and they just they divide like cells. Until today, uh, we have twenty eight thousand registered denominations in the world. Twenty eight thousand Christian denominations. So there were basically like four Christian denominations for the first 1,500 years. And in the last five, we've come up with 28,000 different iterations of how to read this book. This broke Erasmus's heart. Because he just couldn't believe that people weren't willing to sit down and talk. He just couldn't believe that people weren't willing to have some ministry of reconciliation between people. You know, that passage we just read from 2 Corinthians, if Martin Luther is reading that to you, he's going to tell you one thing, that that has nothing to do with reconciling people. It has to do only with reconciling ourselves to God, individuals to God. And I, that's absolutely there. It's absolutely part of it. But if you ignore the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, if you ignore the desire to have unity between believers, you get this. All the different breaking aparts. Erasmus went to every meeting he could go to. He went to every council he could go to. He went to every debate he could go to. He wrote as much as he could write. But he was swept up in a, a, a time... That was bigger than him. And so uh, I, I poked, picked this word for him, um, which I have to think through my head before I say it out loud. Eirenapoios. <clears throat> That's it. I'm not going to say it again. Um, <laughs> which comes from uh, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Erasmus is one of those people where you look at and you just can't say he was successful in any sort of worldly sense. But when I look at what he believed and when I look at how he tried to live his life and I look at how he struggled, I hope, I desperately hope that he was blessed. I desperately hope that, that God is, uh, was, that the Spirit of God was behind Erasmus's convictions, trying, because there's no way. The church needed reform. The church absolutely needed to change. I mean, they were, it was in desperate, desperate times. But Erasmus was someone who believed it didn't have to be as bad as it turned out to be. That if we could work at it, if we could hold together, if we could focus on Jesus then Jesus would indeed transform us together instead of transforming us apart. The, uh, <clears throat> the sermon series that we've been talking about is this windows to the spirit story, right? Where I've told you that the idea is not to lift up these characters of history as, as these big time heroes that we you know, venerate and honor, but to honor the work of the spirit in their lives. To honor the work of Christ in their witness, in their testimony, in their story. That, that Christ has broken through these people. 
that these people were new creations who uh, were emanating the light of Christ, that the work of the Spirit was alive in them. See, when we, when we get into this kind of uh, day and age where we are, many, many people look at today's time and they say there's a whole lot of similarities between now and the year 1516. There's a whole lot of similarities in the way that we treat each other. It's a whole lot of similarities in the way that we debate facts, right? The whole like uh, everybody's entitled to their own facts kind of thing these days and fake news and all that jazz. Um, that's not new, actually, right? Because when you were a Protestant, everything the Catholics wrote was fake news. And when you were a Catholic, everything the Protestants wrote, were that was fake news, too. Um, there are a lot of similarities between now and then. And I find myself, as, as I try to live out this idea of peacemaker in this world, um, I find myself being about as successful as Erasmus. <laughs> I find myself uh, being rebuffed at times by uh, those over here and those over there. I find myself... Uh, feeling like I don't have much of a place sometimes because it's really hard work. Peacemaking is extraordinarily difficult. And you know, you say you eat dinner with this person. Well, then everybody else who disagrees with that person thinks, well, now Matt just endorses everything that person believes in. Or you go and you work at this thing with this other person. Now, I anyway, you get the idea. You get the image of how difficult it can be. I don't have to preach to you about that. And yet, I think it's worth it. I think peacemaking is worth it, not because it's easy, not because it'll even happen. It's worth it because that's the activity of the Spirit. It's worth it because that's the will of God. That's the desire of God. He has given to me a ministry of reconciling people unto himself and reconciling people unto one another. That is the story of the Spirit. The Spirit holds true and fast to bring peace within the body of Christ. There's this uh, passage from Ephesians chapter 4, which Ephesians is different uh, from 2 Corinthians in that in 2 Corinthians, it's Paul's having this disagreement with the Corinthians, right? But when Paul writes about unity and peace to the Ephesians, he's talking to a congregation. And he's asking them within their congregation to seek this peace, to seek this bond with one another. And he writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. Ask yourself, uh, what would you think of if you, were, if you were sketching out a worthy life of the calling you've received? What kind of things would you say are a worthy life of that calling? Would you say reading your Bible every morning before the sun comes up? Would you say... Uh, praying this many times in a day? Would you say praying for this many number of people? Well, this is what Paul says to the Ephesians as this worthy life, this description of this worthy life is be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We are together. Sorry, but my mic keeps going in and out. We are not bound together by this building. We are not bound together by uh, these puzzle pieces, even though I really would like that. But we are bound together because the Spirit is doing something in us. We are bound together because the Spirit is making peace between us. This Ephesians chapter 4 is the famous passage where Paul talks about um, the body of Christ, right? Or one of the famous passages where he talks about being a body of being sewn together. So the, we have these puzzle pieces because we can't just, we need to seek peace out in the world between God and, and people. We need to seek peace within Christianity, right? I mean, I, I am dedicated uh, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon to reaching my hand out to people who are different from me within the Christian stream, right? Uh, teaching the class on Wednesday nights with E.C. Bell. E.C. and I disagree on plenty, but I'm going to teach this class with him, and I'm going to do my absolute best to get along with him, even when it drives me. No, uh, it's actually pretty easy. The, uh, so that's part of the calling. we got this, this global calling, this big calling of bringing peace between people and God. we got this other kind of calling that can be really be more local, right, where we go out into this community and we connect with Christians who maybe are different from us. But then... The whole puzzle piece thing, this is about us. This is about being bound together with one another. Because it is not God's will for us to be solitary puzzle pieces. It is the Spirit's direction and movement to bond us together. To knit us together through the bonds of love and humility and gentleness. All in and through and on and above and whatever other preposition you can think of with Christ. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, he says to the Ephesians. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, I'm going to mix my metaphors. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I'm not very good at following instructions. Um, <laughs> you got this, this puzzle piece. Puzzle piece doesn't, uh, doesn't look like much by itself. In fact, mine, look at this. Mine is actually entirely blank. There's nothing on my puzzle piece. All by itself is nothing but blankness. Now, I can color it vibrantly, right? I can make it the best looking thing. I can go and buy hundreds of dollars worth of paint, right? And make this just the brightest, most amazing puzzle piece that there can possibly be. And then I can tell you all, you know what? I, I took my talents. I took what I've been entrusted with this puzzle piece and I made it the best puzzle piece that it could be. And then you all put the rest of the puzzle together and there's going to be a blank spot because this thing is not doing its job. This thing is missing its calling. This thing is going against what it was designed to be. 
God's will, the Spirit's activity is to draw us together in the bonds of peace and love and humility. We have to interlock. The other metaphor that I was going to use, um, which I like a lot, so I'm going to use it, is uh, imagine, you know, I mean, this is a perfect time of year for this. Imagine you're walking down the street, okay, and you see a tree that is beautiful and filled with vibrant colors. Let's say it's just uh, just the brightest, most golden, just almost translucent uh, yellow. And imagine there was one leaf on that tree that was really tired of being with all the other leaves and blending in with all the other leaves. And it was just like, I just want to shine on my own. I just want to be me. I just, I just want to be all that God created me to be just by myself. And so one day a wind comes along and God answers that prayer and the leaf is swept away from the rest of the tree. What happens to the leaf as soon as it leaves the body? Falls to the ground and it begins to quickly wither and die. These are high stakes. We have never been more tempted in all of human history. Christians have never been more tempted to go it alone, do it on our own, do our own thing. But if the New Testament is right, that is bad for us. It is better for us to stick it out with people we don't like. It is better for us to have conversations with people we struggle with. It is better for us to engage in conversations over difficult theological topics. It is better for us to gather together to look at Christ together and focus on him and ask him and beg him to do this mysterious work of unity in us than for us to fall from the tree and get maybe a moment of being golden all by ourselves on the ground before we wither. So today, uh, Tim and Lori are going to come back up and they're going to play a few more songs. And while we play those songs, what I want you to do is color this in. Because the puzzle piece, or the puzzle, is not about you not being you, right? It's not saying, you know what, no, no, you don't discover your calling, no, you should just do what we all do. Or it's not about saying, you know what, you just, uh, you, you just fall in line. Don't ask questions. Just be a, a good little silent Christian that does whatever your pastor says. No, you be you, but interlocked and bonded with the rest of us. So color this. If being you means that it just needs to be a boring old brown, then be boring old brown. If being you means it needs to have 25 colors in it, then let it have 25 colors. I don't care. Be you. But let's be together. So take the time to do that. We're going to sing two songs, so you'll have about that much time. And then at the end, uh, we will gather these all together and we'll put them together. You don't have to stay for that, but we'll see how that part works. Um, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for each person in this room. I thank you for their gifts. I thank you for the wonderful, amazing people that they are in you. And I thank you for the way that I benefit so much from interlocking with them, God, from, from being alongside them, from, wor uh, from working with them, from, from ministering together. I am not, not a quarter as good without them.
I thank you for that will and that direction and that desire to weave us together. And I just pray that if there's any resistance within us, any resistance to, uh, to being moved by your spirit, any resistance to peacemaking, to reconciliation, whether it be between ourselves and you or between one another, God, I pray that your spirit would just wash those resistances away. That you would let us to humble ourselves and to see one another, not from a human point of view, but from the point of view of your son and the work that he continues to do through his spirit. Fill us with you. God, help this puzzle go together. (laughs) And uh, help us to appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the mystery that is our unity in you as a result of it. You are good, and you are great, and you are kind, and you are wonderful, and we praise you for desiring our our unity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.